Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. First, they tried burning me. <laughs> then, they tried burying me. <laughs> the following program is a podcastwarn.com production. But I just keep on checking. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The pot of thunder and rock and roll. It's Eek Week right now. <laughs> and we'll possess your virgin soul. <laughs> it's Halloween Friday. It's The remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. Let's go for a scary ride. <laughs> Franken chicken, he's a bad mother clucker. Franken chicken, bark, bark. Franken chicken, he's a bad mother clucker. Franken chicken, bark, bark. Franken chicken, he's a bad mother clucker. Franken chicken, bark, bark. Franken chicken, he's a bad mother clucker. Franken chicken, bark, bark. Yes, the insanity creeps across the nation. The world lives in terror of the Franken-Chicken. <laughs> Corey Taylor, that's for you, my man. If you haven't heard the Corey Taylor episode, go back a, a week or two and hear all about the Franken-Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get a kick out of that. I hope you do, I hope you do too. Uh, it's Eek Week. I'm really excited. Two more great guests today on Halloween I got to talk as Jericho alumni Tom Savini. He's returning to talk about his favorite death scenes in movies, ones that he created and ones he did not. He is the special effects horror master, after all. He's also got some amazing stories about Stephen King from when they worked together on Creepshow. We're also going to talk to the top zoologist in the world. Lauren Coleman is here. He's the man who first investigated and ultimately named the Dover Demon in Massachusetts. He led an investigative expedition to Loch Ness to study the existence of Nessie. We're going to talk quite a bit about lake monsters. He's written books about lake monsters. There are thousands all across the globe. And we're going to talk about his first crypto love, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti. Plus, we'll hear about chupacabras, the Amazon River Dolphin, the Mothman. And if you've been wondering if there's really a distinction between Bigfoot, Yeti, and Sasquatch, Lauren will answer that question as well. So many scary supernatural topics. We're going to get started. I want you to tuck yourself in and beware to be freaked out. But first, I got to say thank you for listening to the show. And thank you to all you guys for doing your online shopping through my Amazon links at podcast1.com. 
Amazon is a proud sponsor of Talk is Jericho. And every time you shop at Amazon through one of my links, Amazon gives a small percentage of your purchase back to the show to help us cover production costs. It's the easiest way to support this podcast. I got links for the Amazon USA, Amazon UK, and Amazon Canada. A, just go to podcastone.com, click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. You get all kinds of cool stuff on Amazon, like the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? My new book, the bestseller, the best in the world at what? I have no idea. Sweeping the Nation. Have you read it yet? You should. Uh, get yourself one of Tom Savini's movies, Dawn of the Dead, or From Dusk Till Dawn. You can even get one of Lauren Coleman's books, Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures, or The Field Guide to Slake Monsters, Sea Serpents, and Other Mystery Denizens of the Deep. i got to read that one myself. Get anything you want, man. You can get plates and pots and pans and microphones and luggage. It's Amazon. they got everything there. If you buy anything, also, it won't cost you anything extra. No hidden fees or charges. If you happen to be doing some Amazon shopping, you can help out the show in the process. Just go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Bookmark it as well so you can get to these links in one easy click. All right. First of all, I, I want to start off with a little bit of a retraction, so to speak. Uh, if you heard the Sabu episode, there's been some comments about my comments about Taz when I mentioned that uh, he was exposed when he went to the WWE after he left ECW. Now, sometimes when you're running a show, uh, it's a responsibility for me to keep things flowing. I got to talk off the cuff, a lot of improv, mostly improv, especially with my guests. I don't have any uh, questions written down. So sometimes uh, I got to think fast. When I said Taz was exposed, I used the wrong word. That wasn't what I meant to say. What I meant to say is that he wasn't uh, protected in the WWE like he was in ECW. In ECW, he was the top dog because he was protected by Paul Heyman in the booking. That means he won the integral matches. He was put in the best spots. And even when he lost, he did it in a way that it never really uh, hurt the, the uh, I guess, the legend of what Taz was, the mindset of what the character was. In WWE, he wasn't given that luxury. So he uh, was, wasn't protected he wasn't put in the top matches. He wasn't given all of the, the big push that he was in ECW. And when he lost, it was different. It lost in a different way. So to say that he was exposed would imply that he wasn't a good worker, which he was. I always enjoyed working with Taz. I thought he was a very good worker, especially at what he did. And when he came into the WWE, right off the bat, if you remember, his debut against Kurt Angle was off the chisane. People went nuts for it. That's the Taz they wanted to see. Uh, but that protection and that position was not uh, afforded to him throughout his WWE career, so he wasn't protected in the same way that he was in ECW. And I just wanted to make that clear because there's a lot of people that were questioning that, and it was it came across very harsh, and I didn't mean it to be that way. So Taz was not exposed when he was in the WWE. He was not protected when he was in the WWE. That is the word that I meant. So uh, apologies and salutations to all involved. Go back and listen to the Sabu podcast if you haven't heard it. Sabu definitely very controversial. Had no problems saying what he felt, and that's Sabu. He doesn't talk a lot, but when he does, he uh, he has uh, no inhibitions at all about saying exactly what he means. Okay. Also, last week, go back if you want to hear the uh, Lloyd Kaufman show. The creator of the Toxic Avenger and the entire Troma Team uh, films. There's been hundreds of them over the years, and Lloyd is a has been a 40 year Hollywood veteran. He is the best guy at making movies where he makes no money. 
<laughs> He's also been a huge influence to Quentin Tarantino and Eli Roth and uh, John Landis and so many guys. Also a retraction. I said that uh, Samuel L. Jackson got his break in a Lloyd Kaufman movie and went on to make millions in the matrix. I know it was Lawrence Fishburne and I'm sure people get them uh, mixed up all the time. I did get them mixed up. Samuel Jackson was not in the matrix. I know I'm sorry. That was Lawrence Fishburne. Samuel Jackson was in the star Wars uh, movies. Uh, Samuel Jackson was in Pulp Fiction and every Quentin Tarantino movie. I know the difference between the two. I made a mistake. I'm allowed to do that. It's my show. All right. Uh, Speaking of my show, I got more Fozzie show coming up cinder block party tour with texas hippie coalition and Seamus harvest starts november 20th at the machine shop in flint michigan love the machine shop you got to come and check that out november 21st at the hole in the wall in steger illinois in minneapolis on the 22nd at mill city 23rd des moines at woolies 24th st louis at the illustrious pops 25th rockford at the district 26 kenosha that's going to be the uh, thanksgiving beer bash with jackals on that bill that should be fun joplin missouri rock 3405 on the 28th 29th lubbock texas at jake's back room 30th in dallas at the trees and the list goes on and on check out all of those dates uh, it ends up December 12th in St. Pete at the State Theater. And then we head overseas, the Cinderblock Party World Tour 2015 with the Dirty Youth, one of the biggest up-and-coming bands in the UK today. We're super excited to have them with us. We kick it off March 4th in Belfast, Ireland, and we're going to be touring all across the UK. We hit Cork on the 5th, Dublin on the 6th, Nottingham on the 7th, Wolverhampton on the 8th, Manchester on the 9th, Glasgow on the 10th, London on the 11th, Bristol on the 12th, Exeter on the 13th, Southampton on the 14th. It's going to be a long tour, a good tour for us. The biggest UK tour we've ever done. Tickets on sale for all of this right now. Go to fozzyrock.com to pick up all of that information. And don't you dare forget, if you're going to be in Bournemouth, Liverpool, Newcastle, Glasgow, Braunschweig, and Frankfurt. I will be there with the WWE uh, that's coming up uh, just in a couple weeks. So I will see you there. And those are the only shows that I have scheduled. So please don't ask me, are you coming to uh, Bristol? Are you coming to you know Dublin? Are you coming to New York? No, I will not be anywhere except for those six towns, and I'm looking forward to it. Going to be fun to get back in the ring for a short time, and it's going to be fun to get back with Tom Savini, the Godfather of Gore. And I found him in a pub. Let's check it out. All right, we're here with a good friend of mine, good fr- alumni. Of Talk is Jericho. Tom Savini's here. How you doing, Tom? Hello, Chris. <laughs> I'm I'm standing in the pub at Epcot Center in Orlando. <laughs> there you go. The the, the real there, of course. <laughs> well, it's good to talk to you, Tom. I, I wanted to have you on, being the fact that it's Halloween week, and you're one of the uh, the creepiest guys that I've known over the years. Giving well, what many... do you mean by that? <laughs> giving so many people nightmares. I wanted to talk uh-huh. to you and find out what is it that, that gives you nightmares uh, about horror movies, and 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 what att- uh, what attracted you to want to get into makeup? Was there a certain thing that you saw in a movie that, that freaked you out that you said, I want to do this? Oh, hell yeah. It was uh, Man of a Thousand Faces, the story of Lon Chaney. You know, my son's name is Lon. I named him after Lon Chaney. Okay. But that's the first movie that showed me 
that somebody creates the monsters. Because you know, before that, I, I believe they were all real. Right. You know? That was a big awakening, but then I decided I want to be one of the guys that creates the monsters. Now, when you when you talk about the, the, the monsters that you created, what were some of the favorite death scenes that you created uh, throughout all your work when you were doing special effects? I created. Uh, well, you know the uh, the the guy, the zombie that stands up into the helicopter blade and onto it. That gets applause. They applaud that. You talking about the yeah, zombie the guy, that the, the top of his head gets chopped off by the by the uh, helicopter blade? Yeah, yeah. No, there's I, death scenes in other movies too that I love. I mean, well, look, well, another one of mine is floating uh, off my own head in Maniac. You know, sitting in the front seat of a car and. The maniac fires through the windshield and blows my head off. You know. so, that's that's pretty decent. <laughs> How did you do that? Well, I had a mask of myself, and and why I brought it to the to the shoot, and uh, I just I just put a plaster lining it and filled it with everything from the you know craft service table, shrimp dip, apples. I put uh, you know rubbers filled with blood inside it and sealed it, and then you know I, I played the part. I'm sitting in the front seat of the car. It's actually me holding. It's actually me that fires the gun through the windshield and, and blows that plaster rubber food-filled head of mine apart. So you, so you blew your own head off in the movie. Oh, that was yeah, it was great fun because look, you know, you're not allowed to fire a gun in New York. It's Sullivan Law. You know, it's five years sentence. Uh-huh. But we stole that. We stole that shot. We just went under the Veritano Bridge. I blew my head off, and then I tossed the gun to some guy who jumped in the car and drove away. And then within 60 seconds, everybody else was gone. You know, so. Guerrilla gorilla filmmaking, right? Exactly. What, what other ones stand out for you of, of things that you did that, were, that kind of even almost creeped you out? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I was thinking about the guy in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. You know, he's this big, fat uh, uh, stunt guy. Mm-hmm. And he and he and he gets he gets smashed under the big wheel, you know, between the thing that's breaking rocks. Yes. You know, that was that was a pretty good death scene. That's what you asked me, right? Another death scene? Yeah, well, I was thinking of some death scenes okay. that you liked in movies or, or ones that the other ones that you created as well. Because I mean you've created so, I mean for you it's just another like, oh, it's just another day at work, but you've created some things that people will never forget. Like for me, uh, we talked about it when you were on before, but when, when the guy uh, in the mall during Dawn of the Dead tries to check out his own blood pressure and then has his arm ripped off. I mean, that's just absolutely disgusting, but I'll never forget it. I've seen it probably when I was 13, and I remember it vividly every day of my life. Thanks, Tom. Well, what about your... Well, no, you're welcome for that memory. What about the, uh, what about the guy uh, uh, who gets his guts torn out on the floor, you know? Oh, that's right. Yeah, with, with, that, was, that was my friend. That was my friend, Tasha. We decided we'll just... We'll just tear his guts out, you know. Remember that when they, or did they cut it from where you saw it? I don't know. No, they, I saw it as with all the pig entrails. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you have the, the, the creative freedom during that movie to just uh, uh, do whatever you want, or did it say in, in the script, zombies no. rip entrails out? No, no, no. Uh, 80% of the stuff you saw in that movie we came up with. The script had very few things in it. We just kept coming up with stuff. And we'd go to George and, hey, man, how, how about if we drive a screwdriver through a zombie's ear? Hmm. We'd go, okay. <laughs> and then we'd do it. Then we'd, we'd create a retractable screwdriver and get a blood pump going, and then we would do it. And what that was great about it, George would let us improvise whenever we came up with something to go ahead and do it. Even as actors, he let us do that. So what movies uh, scared you throughout the years? Like, what are your, if someone said to you, Tom, what's your favorite horror movies? Uh, which ones would you choose? 
Well, the, uh, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, well, there's only two uh, that scared me, and that was The Exorcist and Alien. You know, hmm. because when you're behind the scenes of this stuff, uh, you know, you, it's hard to watch a movie and see the story again, uh, you know, the, the magic that drew you to it, because you're, you're, you're looking at what the director is doing, what, what the lighting is like, and the choices the actors are making, and mm-hmm. the makeup. You know, you're, it's kind of hard to see the movie like when I was eight years old. I'd love to see a movie again to the eyes of an eight-year-old child, you know, where everything is real, you know. Mm-hmm. But, 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 The Exorcist did it to me. The Exorcist and Alien, I never thought for a second about anything technical. You know, I just didn't, mm-hmm. was involved in the story, and it scared the hell out of me. It's funny because I asked Eli Roth the same question a few days ago, and he mentioned The Exorcist as well. I think I, I'm the same way because it could, it could actually happen. You know what I mean? Like you see Alien or, or, or Dawn of the Dead, and it's like, okay, I mean, probably not aliens or probably not zombies going to attack. But demon possession, that's something that, that you can relate to. Like it could be real. Yeah. Well, not only that, we were brainwashed with that stuff. You know, if you're raised a Catholic, you just brainwashed with that stuff. So that. That movie hit a chord deep inside your, your brain that's been, you know, uh, involved in that stuff since you were a kid in Catholic school, you know. Right. So scary, but, but that's part of it, too, yes. That could, uh, it could happen to anybody, you know. Did you do you do you watch the the effects in that film and, and uh, marvel at how how realistic they are and how good they are? Well, now I do. Now I do because uh, you know it was it was done by Dick Smith. You know, you learn. Even when I saw it, though, I, you know, normally when I go to see a movie that another makeup artist has done the effects on, it's like, it's like you're going to the latest exhibit from that artist, you know, to see their stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what the movie is. But even though Dick Smith did it, you know, I still was not interested in thinking about it when watching the movie. That's why, that's why it scared me so bad. But later on, of course, you research stuff. No, I mean, some of the greatest stuff, did you, have, did you watch The Walking Dead? Yeah. Did you see the opening episode this year? Absolutely. Well, Greg Nicotero directed it. I just left him. We just had dinner last night. He and the whole Walking Dead crew were down here in Orlando for Universal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that, that trough scene, that has scarred me. I don't want those images in my head anymore. You know. That was, you know, the trough when they were killing Absol- all those people. It was, it was yeah, so... And then, you know, and, but, and so Greg told me how they did it. They were just glued tubing to the guy's neck. And the visual effects guys erased the tubing. So all you see is blood shoot out. I mean, it's just brilliant. Wow. But, that, that, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, I wish I... I don't want those images <laughs> I know. to linger well, in it, my brain. Very, very unsettling. And it's funny because I think everybody that I've talked to feels the same way. That's one of those images to me, similar to the what I mentioned to you earlier, but the blood pressure guy in Dawn of the Dead. You never forget that because it's so... It had nothing to do with zombies. It was so brutal and so violent and so, uh, I don't even know what the word, barbaric. You never forget it. Yeah, also it just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and just, just the, the suspense of it. Now, you mentioned that they actually edited out the tubes. That's something that you didn't have the luxury of doing back when you were doing special effects. So you had no CGI that's back right, then. That's right. That, that wasn't part of our toolbox. I wish we had. I mean, I love CGI when it's done well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I could have had it like the hide and edge back then. or just simple stuff. Not, I mean, I'm sure you've seen movies where it's all about the CGI and the story. You know, you don't even know what this the story is. Right. But, I mean, did, how would you have done that then, for example, if you, if you couldn't erase the tubes? Would you have to try and, like, tape them down more? Or would you have to film from a different direction? Or how would you combat oh, that? Oh, no, no, no. You, uh, you, make a, you make a cast of the person wearing the tube. 
Mm. Then when you make the rubber piece, when you make the rubber piece from that cast, uh, the, the area where the tubing uh, was is still there. And you put the tubing in and you can't, it's underneath an appliance. You know, it's underneath a rubber foam latex thing that you glue to the person. It takes a long, long time. And it's got to blend the edges and the coloring. You know, just gluing the tube there and erasing it later just saves so much time and, and work, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W- one last question, Tom. What do you think the scariest movie is that you ever worked on, either acting-wise or doing the effects for? The scariest one I ever worked on. Wow. Or, you know, that's kind of tough because uh, I love scares that come from suspense, and Monkey Shine was full of that, mm. uh, the movie I did. Yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, well, Creep Creepshow. I have to say Creepshow. Not that it was scary. It just, it's five movies. And, you know, some of it could have been scary. It's hard to be objective about, you know, Ted Danton, you know, being buried in the sand with his head above the sand and the tide coming in, you know. <laughs> right. That's horrible. That's horrible, you know. But uh, so I guess that was scary to people. <laughs> Absolutely. I just saw that the other day, and he even puts the uh, the big TV up on the beach with the long extension cord so you can yeah. watch it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom. Like Stephen King, man. Stephen King wrote all that. Did you get when you worked with that? Did Stephen tell you? Uh, did he, was he on the set at all where you, when you did oh, that? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Not only was Stephen King on the set, but one day he was missing, and uh, I had to go to a store. And I'm driving down the highway, a four lane highway with a median strip, and here comes Stephen King. He's walking on the median strip, reading a book <laughs> and drinking like Perrier or something, you know. <laughs> So when he got hit by the van recently, it made me think, well, Jesus, yeah, because he just walked down the road reading a book. Not really paying attention to yeah, what's He was going. in the middle of the highway. He was in the middle of the highway. I, I called out to him, and you know, hey, look, I, he came with me to the store, so, you know. Because uh, <laughs> well, so he was there. He was you actually had to, he was actually in the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. He was he was the only guy in that in that little movie. And you, yeah, had to, yeah. you had to turn him into basically a giant weed. Yeah, a big weed, and then he blows his head off. <laughs> wow. Okay. There you go. You got to kill yourself and kill Stephen King, uh, both within a few years, Tom. Yeah, that's yeah, that's quite a life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I appreciate you talking to you, man, and uh, I'll let you go back to the pub. Definitely one of the creepiest guys I know. That's the quote. There's thank the quote you, of the thank interview. You kindly, yes, Mr. Creepy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to you soon, my All friend. Right, Best of luck. You bet. Happy Halloween. Same to you. Thanks, man. All right, man. Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Talk is Jericho. All right, on the line, one of the uh, most experienced cryptozoologists on the planet, Lauren Coleman, is here. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jacob? I'm doing great. I'm glad that uh, I finally was able to hook up with you. It's been a, a long time coming, uh, tracking you down uh, out of nowhere. <laughs> I sent you these messages out of nowhere because I was very interested in all your work and all the stuff that uh, that you've done over the years, and I'm glad you, uh, we were able to finally work it out. 
Sure. It's, uh, you know, it's been a hard journey this winter, but I'm glad we could finally hook up. Yeah, well, I mean, let's just jump right into it, Lauren. I mean, like I said, you're, you're one of the top cryptozoologists on the planet, uh, something I'm very familiar with and very interested in. But explain to, to, to the uninitiated what exactly a cryptozoologist is. Sure. Well, start with the word. Cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown animals. If you think about it, the media would have you believe that cryptozoology is just about the celebrity cryptids, as I call them, Bigfoot, Yeti, Loch Ness Monster, Mm -hmm. sea serpents, things like that, chupacabras. But uh, indeed, at any one time around the world, there's probably 200 different cryptids that are under investigation. Everything from, uh, in other words, the whole mission of cryptozoology is to discover new species, new animals. So like the most recent one was a new tapir in the rainforest of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, the classic ones are like the giant squid, the mountain gorilla, the okapi. All of those animals used to be cryptids. They used to be fantastic creatures, and then uh, they were discovered and uh, verified. So a cryptozoologist, the mission of a cryptozoologist is to gather the um, native tales, the uh, indigenous people's sightings, try to get physical evidence, uh, and then make sure that there's uh, more, and ev- more and more evidence and that biologists, zoologists, oceanographers, marine scientists, anthropologists go and discover these new animals. And that's, that's what it's really about in a nutshell. I remember uh, reading when I was a kid, and, and even now my son is very interested in, in fish and sea creatures, when uh, they discovered the coelacanth back in the 50s, 60s, which was a prehistoric fish that they previously thought was uh, extinct and then suddenly caught one in, in the ocean somewhere. So that would be an example of, of a cryptid, something they didn't think existed that they then found out existed. Is that, is that kind of the same idea? Exactly. Well, actually, at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, that I'm director of, our logo animal, our one that's on our flag and our logo, is the coelacanth. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're here on the coast. And the coelacanth story is definitely an intriguing one in which the native peoples, they would eat these creatures, they would catch them, or they would beach, uh, and they would, uh, it was a, a gigantic fish, about five and a half, six foot long, too big to throw back, uh, but they discovered very quickly that it tasted horrible, it was oily, but they used lots of spices and cooked it well and all of that. Well, in 1938, um, Marjorie Lemaire was a director of the a museum in East London, South Africa. And she actually would go down to the docks every day, look at the different fish and try to figure out was there one that she could taxidermically mount as a new exhibit in her museum. She was down there in, in December of 38, and she came across this fish that was beautiful, blue, iridescent. And she said, oh, I have to have that. But unfortunately, she'd walked down to the dock, so she had to talk a cab driver into putting it in the back seat of the taxi <laughs> and then and then she took it back to the museum and very quickly she discovered through a dr smith who was an ichthyologist expert of uh, fish in africa that this was a fish as you're you're saying that had not been seen in the scientific journals in the scientific record for 65 million years everybody thought it was extinct mm-hmm. but here um the unfortunate thing, because she had had it mounted, because in December in South Africa, 
was beginning to spoil and rot. And he got very upset. He got back from his holiday uh, two weeks later, Christmas vacation, and he wanted to look at the internal organs. They were all had been thrown away in the garbage. Right. Uh, so he became obsessed. And I think what you're talking about was for years and years, he looked for the second one. And when the second one was actually discovered in December of 1952, it became an international sensation. Oh, wow. The Life magazine, Look magazine. And a lot of people don't know this, but the second discovery of the coelacanth, the second body found in, in uh, 53, the, the publicity it got in 53 actually inspired the making of the movie Creature from the Black Lagoon in 54. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It was a direct result of that because the movie makers felt that if here this living fossil had come from what they called the ooze, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the primordial ooze of uh, the Jurassic Age, they were going to have something like the creature from the Black Lagoon come from South America. We haven't found any coelacanths in South America yet, but uh, 30 years after the initial discovery in Africa, off the waters of Africa, a second species of coelacanth was discovered in 1998 wow. off, the, off the coast of Indonesia. And there is hope. It's actually a darling of cryptozoology because there's, there's real hope that in some of the trenches around the world there may be unknown new species and new populations of the coelacanth. So it's, it's one of those uh, animals that keeps on giving us surprises like the giant squid or the megamouth shark and different Ones of the water creatures certainly are still unknown and and give us a lot of surprises. So there other there are other examples of of the, the coelacanth species. You mentioned the giant squid a couple times. Was that another uh, example of a, of a of an animal that they thought was extinct that they just found? Well, they didn't really know what it, what they had going on here because what had occurred was the tails of the kraken mm-hmm. were all all over you know international tails of the kraken. And the giant squid was discovered in 1865 by some fishermen off of Newfoundland. They had been catching this thing or finding dead bodies, cutting it up and using it as bait. Mm-hmm. So when it was first, a whole body was uh, discovered and analyzed. And they felt it wasn't, you know, it wasn't any of these little squids that they knew about or even octopus. It was a brand new creature they called the giant squid. Another creature that's kind of similar to uh, the coelacanth, as far as it being called the living fossil, is actually uh, the okapi, the okapi, that horse-sized and bigger animal with uh, kind of brown and black in the front and then has the stripes in the back. Mm-hmm. You might have seen it at a zoo. That was first, uh, they first ran across that, the pygmies were talking about it, and when it was discovered um, in 1901, they actually thought that they had on their hands a form of zebra that was in the rainforest or jungles, but it turned out to be a living fossil, a prototype in some ways, you could say, of the giraffe, hmm. frozen, frozen at 4.2 million years old. So there are some of those creatures wow. around that are called living fossils that seem to uh, be late discoveries. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that there are these species, like you said, that you think are extinct or we haven't found. And my, my 
attitude has always been when you're talking about some of these creatures, and we'll, we'll go through the whole list. The world is, is a big place, especially the ocean and the forests. It's almost impossible to, to, it's very arrogant to think that we know everything that lives in the ocean, in the forest areas. And that's why I think that there, there's probably so many things that we don't know about just because of the size of these areas. Oh, exactly. I mean, all you have to do is look at this year, and we have a, a large animal, a large mammal. The largest mammal discovered in the last 35 years is a fifth species of tapir. You know, the animals that sort of look like a, a rhinoceros, but they have a prehensile nose. There's five species now that we know about. There used to be four. Hmm. And uh, the newest one was discovered in the Amazon, kind of in the mountain passes, a little bit hairier, a little bit smaller than the ones that were known about. And it turns out we actually are, you know, humans, scientists, Western science, actually had a specimen of it on exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History since 1912, but it had been unclassified, unknown really, that it was a new species. Uh, hmm. One of the reasons that it was there and kind of probably but distracted people from really looking too deeply into it is the person that shot it and put it there was more important at the time than the actual creature that he actually killed. Uh, that person's name was a guy named Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. So, so he actually shot one of these new species a hundred years ago. The native people said, well, there's a different one up there. <laughs> Nobody really believed them until recent years. And now we know there's a whole brand new species of tapir. That's tapir with a T? T-A-P-I-R. Wow. <laughs> and Teddy Roosevelt bagged himself 100 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, what, uh, what brought you into, into the cryptozoology field in, in the first place, Lauren? Well, in 1960, in March of 1960, I was watching um, a science fiction film on, on my TV at home. And uh, I was a young little lad, and I... Uh, this TV program, this movie, it was one of those Japanese films that got redubbed, mm -hmm. and it had a documentary feel to it. It was about the Yeti. It was actually a movie called Half Human, mm -hmm. and it was I learned later it was by a director named Mishiro Kondo, who had been famous for a movie right before that that I was oblivious to back then, a little movie called Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after Half Human, he did Rodan, which is, you know, another famous film. Yes. Half Human really is a kind of an unknown film because it turns out that it's been banned in Japan because within the movie, the uh, indigenous peoples, the native peoples that are shown, the Ainu, are actually beat up by the Japanese. So it's an embarrassing film nowadays. Hmm. Anyway, back then, <laughs> it was about this hairy creature, Yeti-like creature in the mountains of Asia. I went to school the next week, and I asked my teachers, what is this about the Yeti? And they said, well, actually, I'd get back to your studies, leave me alone, they don't exist. <laughs> Those were the three answers I got, which, of course, stimulated me to question authority. Of course. And, <laughs> and I went to the public library, asked, the teacher, you know, asked one of the reference librarians, uh, can you get me any books about this? I found two or three and started reading everything I could, and then I very quickly uh, hooked up with um, game wardens and went on out on investigations of Black Panther reports, giant snake reports, mountain lion reports, and uh, 
uh, sightings of little hairy apes. I lived in central and southern Illinois at the time, so there's quite a bit of culture there and, uh, uh, you know, societal acknowledgement of these unknown creatures in the bottomland areas of Illinois. So I got deeper and deeper into those investigations. I decided to, you know, do undergraduate work in anthropology and zoology, and I wrote my first article. Then, you know, once you write one article, you know, it was very Mm -hmm. quickly. I wrote 600 and put together some of them, wrote books, and then once that happens, the uh, documentary film companies call you up and the radio shows call you up, and I was on my way. I've been to every state in the United States except Alaska going on expeditions and investigating these uh, cases. So it just... One thing followed after another. Before I knew it, I turned around and I had 35 books written. I wasn't <laughs> even trying to do that. I was just trying to share with people what I was finding. You know, I'm very passionate about it, very excited. I think it's a, a wonderful field because it really uh, combines mysteries and animals, two of my favorite things. Well, and also, too, not a lot of uh, cryptozoologists in the world. So like you said, just by the fact that you've done so much work, now suddenly you're like the head of the class. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't (laughs) trying for that, but all all of the people that mentored me, like Bernard Heuvelmans and Ivan Sanderson, who I communicated with, you know, they they eventually passed on and and died, and I wrote their obituaries, and now everybody's saying, well, you're you're one of the senior citizens in in the Mm -hmm. field. I I didn't know that, but here I am. (laughs) So you've gone on a lot of uh, expeditions, you said. I mean, you mentioned uh, so many interesting things, the giant snake and all these other things. Have you ever seen... Any of these things that you set out to look for? Well, most of the time I'm, I'm sort of an investigator, cryptozoologist, journalist, and mm-hmm. I'm interviewing people or trying to dig up the local lore. I certainly have found footprints. Uh, I've heard screeches. Uh, there was one case in 1969 where I saw a giant black panther cross the road, but I, I don't go out wow. on the expeditions trying to become a participant observer. Sure. Most of the time I'm... I'm really just doing it as a scientist and trying to come up. But, you know, in, 1996, in 1999, I did a two-week uh, expedition to Loch Ness, and I would not have been upset if I, I saw the Loch Ness Monster. But uh, it turned out that I, I was giving a talk at a, the first international symposium on cryptozoology and interviewing 35 witnesses and going out to the loch every day and trying to you know see things and also... You know, once you go someplace and look at it and are really there and enmesh yourself in it, you begin to understand some of the sightings. One of the things that really came up for me when I went to Loch Ness was how far north it was. And so when people back in the day, you know, in the 30s would talk about, and I saw the creature cross the road at uh, 8.30 at night or 9 o'clock at night, well, I imagined it was dark. You know, you mm-hmm. but it turns out that it was actually the the land of the midnight sun almost. And and so that was an important piece of information for me to really analyze the reports in a different way. And also, I'm a critical thinker. I'm open-mindedly skeptical of most of the cases. So I looked at the lock, and I, I saw this new phenomenon that I'd never seen before up close. It's called har. And har is actually a rolling fog that goes across the lock and I can see how some people would mistake that for a, a Loch Ness monster. Hmm. So you, it's very important for me to go to as many of these sighting 
meccas as I can so I can really get a feel for what's going on. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I originally was looked up your name and kind of tracked you down is I'm a huge, huge fan of, of Lake Monsters. Obviously, you know, Loch Ness and Nessie. Um, tell us, I, I've been to, to, to Loch Ness. I went on an expedition there and, and couldn't believe how choppy the water was. Like you said, it's a rough ride across that lake. Uh, very creepy to be on that lake, too, just with all the imagination and all the stories and all the lore. So when you went there for the expedition, you said you spoke to or heard a lot of witnesses. What, what, what were some of the reports that you heard from these eyewitnesses that saw something in, in the lock? Well, uh, in general, I think one of the – there's kind of two unknowns that within the unknown. One is that there's been over 40 sightings of the Loch Ness Monsters on land crossing hmm. roads, crossing meadows, being on the beach. And so we're not talking about an animal that's just restricted to the, the lock. Uh, we're looking at an animal oftentimes reported as a giant slug, a giant walrus, a camel, all these descriptions that certainly point to a mammal. Hmm. Uh, and that was very intriguing to me. Also, Loch Ness is only uh, six miles from the ocean down the river Ness. So, you know, with the communication across and the transportation across the land, you could have an animal here that's going back and forth between the sea and the lock. The other important thing that I got from the eyewitness accounts is the traditional picture of the Loch Ness Monster is like a a swan's neck or Mm -hmm. some kind of big elongated neck. But 100% of the people that I talked to, uh, they described what they saw as like an overturned boat, like the back of a whale, mm-hmm. like the back of a walrus, um, you know, elephant-like skin, and different things like that. So that came up for me over and over again, and, and whenever, and it was right about the time when I was there in 1999, mm-hmm. with this whole claim for the, the Loch Ness Monster picture, you know, being produced by a a little toy submarine with a plastique uh, on top of it, like a yeah. Loch Ness Monster. And as it turns out, that wasn't a deathbed confession. The guy had died two years after telling the, the authors of the book about the, his, his claim. And uh, there's there's two pictures of what's called the Sturgeon's photograph, and yeah. one of them is the thing going down in the water. So it doesn't really fit with the hoax claim, but... One of the things that a lot of us have always thought is that that could very well be the tail of an otter going down in the water. You're talking about the famous picture that that, that everyone has seen of the of the neck of the Loch Ness monster sticking out of the of the lake. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. They called the surgeon's photograph. The other thing that uh, there's little tidbits that are important to that story, like a lot of people claim that the surgeon did a hoax and really wasn't trying to. Uh, you know, was kind of secretive about giving the picture to the newspaper and all mm. of that. Well, he was up there having an affair with his secretary. Oh. And, and he didn't really want to be too publicized about what he was doing. So there's... Okay. And he also had taken the picture. He'd seen the creature initially. Even in his report, he talks about going down to the lock's edge to urinate and rushing back for the camera. So there was kind of embarrassing details that made it look like he was withholding evidence or withholding information or lying. Uh, and I really 
think that you need the whole story to really get a good, a good picture of that. But uh, so the surgeon's photograph, I think the hoax claim was a hoax itself, and it gets us all very distracted. Here hmm. in the museum, we have all kinds of pros and cons of, of different things, but people come in here and they say, oh, I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster because that was proven to be a hoax. Well, it wasn't proven in any way to be a hoax, uh, and so we still have to have an open mind about what's going on over So you, you, you think that picture could still be real? I think the picture is uh, certainly real in terms of some kind of anima object. I don't think it, it was a hoax. I don't think it was a, a toy submarine. Okay. But I'm, not, but I'm not saying that that is definite proof of the Loch Ness Monster because it could be a, a you know, a maganzer, you know, a duck, duck-like uh, animal, a water bird. Mm-hmm. It, could, it could be an otter tail. There's all kinds of very mundane explanations for that. Uh, right. When we get to, over to Champ, to the Lake Champlain monster, the, the Mansi photograph, uh, which is also very controversial in recent years because a lot of the quote-unquote skeptics have come forward and said it's just a tree trunk. And you have the same kind of controversy there. I'm not sure what it is. I, I think it's pretty good evidence. And certainly my old friend Robert Rhines was very convinced that of all of the lake monster pictures in the world, uh, the, um, the Mansi photograph was one of the best. So we should keep an open mind about that. So when you're talking to these people and seeing these photographs, what, what kind of a, a creature do you think it may be in, in the lakes? Well, one of the, the, the sort of zoological truths is if you have an animal that is going up and down in the water, up and down in the water, which everybody that's ever, that I've ever interviewed, all of the cases that are very good ones that I've looked into for the Loch Ness Monsters as well as Champ and some of the other lake monsters, they talk about these creatures going up and down the water. Mm -hmm. The up and down in the water animals are mammals. A reptile a fish will go side to side hmm. in terms of how they swim. So this whole business that it's a plesiosaur or that it's, uh, you know, some kind of reptile from 65 million years ago, I really don't think it holds water. And, and I'm very much in tune with some of the early theories from the 1800s that they were looking at some kind of unknown giant seal hmm. or giant walrus with a long neck, uh, which the, you know, it's been kind of made funny by Disney, but the name Water Horse really is what it was called back in, in, back in the day then. And so when the uh, 1933 reports came along of the Loch Ness Monster, it really fit into the Kelpie traditions, the Water Horse traditions that you get all across to Ireland and right. uh, Scotland. Yeah, and I, I believe even that's kind of what uh, I grew up in Canada with on Lake Okanagan with the Ogopogo. I believe that was some, I think o- o- Ogopogo might even mean water spirit or, or water horse spirit or something along those lines. That's what the Indians were calling that uh, creature yeah, as well. The Natakata, I think, is the yeah. Indian name for it. Yeah. So you have, you know, Ogopogo, Manapogo, Igiapogo across the lakes of. Uh, of Western Canada that all seem to match up. And then you get to Quebec, which has an incredible number of lakes full of lake monsters, and they all seem to be similar. So uh, you've got something going on all across Canada. And I've been to uh, Lake Okanagan, and a, a beautiful big lake. Oh, the one thing I wanted to mention about Loch Ness, it's one of those stats that I really like. 
there's enough water in Loch Ness to bury everyone under on Earth under six feet of water. Wow. Lake Loch Ness is so large, it's over 1,000 feet deep in some spots, 23 miles long, over a mile across in some places. It's like a fjord and a navy that's filled full of water. And people really don't understand how incredibly spacious Loch Ness is because you can actually stand, you know, at the castle and you can look across. And so everybody thinks, well, this is just a pond. It's not a pond. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I said, going actually going on that lake and seeing how expansive and how massive it is, it puts a lot of different perspective on things. And also, too, they talk about how the lake, uh, Loch Ness, is filled with a lot of sediment. It's very murky and very hard to see more than two or three feet uh, in front of you when you're under the water. Oh, definitely. It's, it's full of peat, uh, and mm. that just makes it really murky. Don't drink the water. <laughs> so when you when you talk, like we mentioned before, you, you've you've heard some of these eyewitnesses, and has there been any eyewitness reports that really stand out for you of things that you've heard? Oh well, I, I think that uh, you always want as much evidence evidence as you can get, and I think that Tim Dale's film uh, is probably one of the most remarkable records from Loch Ness. You know, he's tried to match it up with a boat, and he's looked at the wave action and different things, and the the Royal Air Force analyzed it. So it's it's information because a lot of people think, well, a film isn't real evidence. It's not eyewitness evidence, but it certainly is. It's just a it's enhanced version of an eyewitness account because Mm -hmm. Tim Densdale saw this, but he also filmed it. And it's very much like the Patterson-Gimlin film. I think if there's a, uh, a Bruder film of the Loch Ness right. Monster, it has to be the Dendale film, which is an extremely good piece of film. That's something you can see on YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah. And actually, it, it shows mostly it looks like a giant back of a whale or a huge creature. So it certainly doesn't have the neck there that everybody fantasizes and romanticizes about Loch Ness, but it has the a typical Loch Ness monster, which looks like the big back of an elephant almost. Well, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, you, you talk about obviously the Loch Ness monster. That's the crown jewel with, with Ogopogo. Everyone knows that one. Champ, a lot of people know it. But I, I was looking up lake monsters a couple months ago. I just Googled it. And there's hundreds of lake monsters all around the world, uh, different reports, different sightings. Now, where there's smoke, there's fire. I'm sure people are seeing something. I'm sure some of them are just made up for tourist purposes. But, I mean, so many, uh, you know, possibilities. Why haven't we ever found any actual specimen? Why haven't we caught one? What, what, where's the elusive coelacanth uh, of lake monsters? Well, um, I wrote the book, The Field Guide to Lake Monsters and Sea Serpent. I took the task on myself of going around the world, looking at every record of every report of lake monster in the world. Mm-hmm. And the list I compiled at the back of the book actually totals 1,000. Oh, my gosh. 1,000. There are are 1,000 lakes around the world that have had lake monster reports. Wow. Then you you start looking at those. Some of them are an occasional seal or or a mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, the the hoaxes are a minority, maybe 1%. uh, And, you know, you're left with a body, at least 600 lakes, that can't be explained by... um, you know, aberrant alligator or a, a manatee or different things that would explain mm-hmm. some of these lake monsters. 
And so you start looking at that, and, and uh, my author, Patrick Leach, and myself, what we really did was we started looking at the different classifications. Most of them really do, the ones that are real unknowns, do look like they're water horses, some kind of unknown giant seal. Hmm. But you have other things going on there, such as uh, elongated uh, sea serpent-type creatures. You even have you know, giant uh, uh, creatures that seem to have uh, segments to them, almost as if they look like uh, armored earthworms. And those hmm. are mostly um, Vietnamese and some Asian cases. You even have some reports that look like water dragons. And what's incredible, if you look into the tales of dragons, uh, a lot of the dragon reports come from some of the mountain lakes of Asia. And if you're uh, dealing with an animal that's coming out of the water in a mountain lake where the air is colder than the actual body of water, what's the first thing the animal coming out of the water is going to do? It's going to breathe, yeah. and it's going to breathe out air that looks like a mist or a cloud, and then it gets uh, made into fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> right. So you have some of those cases. I, I think as far as what we're, what you're asking, has there been a case like the coelacanth with lakes? I think if there has, um, it's not one in which we can easily put our finger on, because what happens as soon as an animal is discovered, it becomes part of the literature of zoology. So you have to really look back at the Amazon River dolphin. In 1846, there were these reports of this fantastic creature in the river, the Amazon River, and then they discovered it, and it turns out it was a dolphin, a brand-new dolphin. Wow. Sometimes, sometimes they're pink, sometimes they're white. Uh, and so that, in many ways, is like the coelacanth. It's a creature that had evolved from the oceans, was in the river, and now we're finding different areas around the world where you have these freshwater dolphins that have come in from the sea and they've become brand-new species because they've evolved. Mm-hmm. And they look a little different. They look a little lighter, and uh, you can see how some people might have made them into ghost creatures. Or even in uh, Brazil, you have all of these traditions where the dolphins actually morph into human beings. Right. So you have the uh, hybrids between humans and dolphins. So I guess it's the it's same in- concept as when they found a tiger shark in the Mississippi River a couple of years ago, like this this fish that just kind of takes a wrong turn and ends up way far inland rather than its natural habitat. Oh, exactly. A, a couple of years ago, they actually had a manatee that made it all the way up the Mississippi River, all the way down the Ohio River, and was in Tennessee. Wow. Uh, so you certainly have those uh, out-of-place animals that can cause some problems for cryptozoologists that don't keep up to date on their out-of-place animals. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the other uh, lists of, of creatures that you've studied and and uh, looked into. The one that I'd never heard of when I was kind of doing a little bit of background work, it was the Dover Demon. Um, what exactly was that, Lauren? Okay, well, the Dover Demon was a case in April of 1977. Uh, it was a, a sighting four different individuals over a 23-hour period in Dover, Massachusetts, Dover, Massachusetts, by the way, is very close to 
Boston, but Dover, Massachusetts, is the wealthiest community in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. There are actually more horses in Dover than there are people. Wow, okay. So, so it's extremely wooded. Uh, there was these individuals in a Volkswagen. They were uh, driving along, and all of a sudden, on a stone wall, they saw this creature. It was going along, and it was about three and a half feet tall. It had um, a figure eight head in which you could only mainly see the, the eyes. Um, no hair on it. Seems like it was uh, the skin was described as like a shark skin and bright orange. So, um, and it had long spindly fingers and I was grabbing on this wall. And, and so that was one sighting. Another sighting was an individual was on a, a road and they was coming towards this creature and it was walking upright. It ran down into a gully and then got on some rocks again and then was standing upright, leaning against a tree. Another sighting was um, a little bit later. It was crossing the road, uh, but on all fours. So, uh when I got hmm. involved in it, I was uh, working as a, a mental health worker in a, a local um, residential treatment center in Needham, Massachusetts, actually right across the river from Dover, Massachusetts. And I heard about the case because I saw a drawing at a country store that I would frequent. Mm-hmm. And the story had not even made any of the media. I was able to look up those individuals, interview them separately. And then I brought in a lot of other interviewers to do a second round of investigations. By then, the police were involved, the media were involved. I'm the one that created the name Dover Demon because I just give uh, sort of file names to mm-hmm. my investigations, and I like alliteration. I'm the one also that named the Montauk Monster, so I okay. Phantom Panther. So I kind of do that, and then they sit there, and then maybe. Forty years later, there's Japanese toy makers making little Dover demons. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, it was just one of those things that became it exploded, and the Dover demon never has been seen again. There's been different theorists that come along and say, well, maybe it was a chupacabra, uh, maybe it was an alien, maybe it was a, you know a, a raccoon with mange. We investigated all of those possibilities. Uh, there weren't too many cryptozoologists around in 1977. I'm sure. Actually, the people that I got involved were seasoned investigators from NICAP uh, and um, MUFON, UFO investigators. And one included uh, uh, Walter Webb, who was the assistant uh, director of the planetarium at the Boston Science Museum. Mm-hmm. So I got really high-caliber investigators in. And we did a thorough, thorough job and looked at everything, and there was no UFOs involved, no aliens, you know, all of that was out the window. There was no common animal, uh, and it was just, these were credible eyewitnesses in which we got two, three levels of uh, acquaintances and, you know, police involved, uh, interviewed, and, and other people. So... Uh, it's one of those cases that actually, down through the years, uh, when I'm asked by the media, what do I think the Dover Demon is or was, it's one of the most comfortable cases for me to say, with all solid foundation behind me, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I really don't know. I don't even know if it really belongs in cryptozoology. Uh, I don't know... Uh, I think that if you look at the word cryptid, 
and how we use the word cryptid in cryptozoology. Cryptid only means this is an unknown animal, unknown entity. And certainly for the Dover demon, I can say this is unknown. I have no theory about what it might be. All I know is because I was so deeply involved in the investigation, mm-hmm. that this creature was seen three times uh, between April 21st and 22nd of 1977, and the eyewitnesses absolutely had a real experience. Now, I mean, and that is very strange. And you mentioned something that that was interesting to me when you said you talked to the UFO experts and and, and was it an alien? Is there sometimes a crossover between, you know, sightings that people think uh, is is something uh, cryptid that could be an alien? I mean, that would be kind of uh, you could make that mistake if you saw something strange. Do you think sometimes it may be kind of a, a crossover type thing? Well, in one of my first books that I wrote, Creatures of the Outer Edge, what I really showed and talked about along with my friend Jerome Clark, who is really a UFO expert, mm-hmm. we got together to do that book because it depends upon your cultural, uh, temporal framework. That You know, you can have people in Brazil in the 1950s who are describing a creature that today would be a cryptid, would be a, uh, uh, you know, some kind of, chupacabras maybe, but back then it would have been an alien. So it really depends on the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a guy like John Keogh, a very close friend of mine. He said to me, I'm not a a ufologist, I'm a demonologist. And by the very fact that he would frame everything in terms of demonology, he went into cases and looked at things differently than uh, my friend Ivan Sanderson or I would. Uh, which has a much more natural history zoology base. So I think you have to look first and foremost at who's investigating this Mm -hmm. and how are they writing it up because you have a lot of people that say there's, I mean, they don't say that there's Elvis sightings, but they say that, you know, there might be Bigfoot and UFO sightings together. Mm -hmm. And I have looked into many and many of those cases and they all fall apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I, and, uh, you know, there's a, a competitor of yours, so to speak, who every time I'm on that show, he says, well, do you think Bigfoot's from UFOs? And I get kind of tired of that question because <laughs> it's really, really, it, it, even though the, the question may be serious, it's, it's experienced in cryptozoology as a real insult to the field mm-hmm. uh, because we take a, a definitely zoological base. And if you actually look at the the evolution of the Mossman case, for instance. Um, the Mossman reports, which nowadays everybody thinks is almost part of ufology or, or, you know, really weird, weird cases, the earliest reports of the Mossman from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1966 were actually of giant birds. People were seeing things that really match up with the Thunderbird cases. And Ivan Sanderson was talking to John Keel and saying, you know, people are talking about these as big birds. Maybe you should go investigate them. Well, John Keel goes and investigates them, and he, before you know it, there's men in black and there's UFO cases mm-hmm. and cattle mutilations and, and all kinds of different things that get thrown into the uh, the Point Pleasant salad. And I think it's, you have to look at the, the point of reference in terms of the reflective factor from the investigator sometimes. Well, I think... Um... I think you're right, too, when you mentioned how 
you're talking about uh, some people would say, well, Bigfoot is UFOs are two separate things. And to cross the streams is a little bit, I think, like, say, like an insult. The other thing that you said, though, you mentioned that John Keel was looking at it from a demonologist standpoint. Does that mean that he thinks that these are all evil spirits or something like that? Uh, very close to that. He felt that the uh, ultra-terrestrials, as he used to call them, which you know, back in the medieval literature they were called elementals, he felt that we were in some kind of great battle with the ultra-terrestrials that live with us on this plane, and we're in, we're in battle and conflict with them, and that they were definitely, from the human point of view, evil. Uh, you know, from their point of view, who knows, maybe they just feel like we're the intruders, and mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're in their basement, and we're in their house, and we're in their, their backyard, and they'd like us out of here. So it really depends on your point of view, but for John, he definitely felt that there was evil about, and he sometimes would use the the term cosmic jokers uh, because he thought that they were just trying to do tricks on us and oh, I not see. necessarily evil. But he definitely felt that it was not, um, he wasn't a, you know, extraterrestrial kind of UFO guy. Okay. He felt that it was much more ultra-terrestrial that they were here with us right now. Gotcha. Uh, you also mentioned the Mothman, which was a, a, apparently a giant moth-like creature, and you mentioned the, the Chupacabra. Well, or... actually, no. The, the Mothman... The name Mothman came about from a copy editor in Ohio who was a fan of the Batman series on TV. Uh-huh. The Mothman was absolutely never described as a moth or an insect. It was always described as a feathered creature oh, okay. that would flap its wings. So, Okay, so it was a giant, like you said, a giant bird-like creature that was seen countless times. Um, but same with the Chupacabra. Explain us a little bit about what the Chupacabra is. Okay, well, the Chupacabra is another one that's been morphed into something it's not. In 1995, the Chupacabras, uh, and Chupacabras, I guess, is a, the Spanish, both singular and plural, so you have to always put the S on it, I've been told by my Spanish friends. <laughs> okay. Chupacabras were seen, they were a creature about three and a half, four feet tall, always bipedal, always on two legs, always covered in a little fine gray hair and having spikes out the back and up the back of their head and over the head. Okay. And they, you know, had large eyes and they would... Chupacabras actually is Spanish for goat sucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would drain the blood, supposedly, of livestock and goats and that, things like that. Well, they were reported first in Puerto Rico and then it spread throughout Hispania and Latin America. And the reports were almost always the same little upright creatures uh, you have the skeptics believing that the Chupacabra's reports really were initiated from the movie Species, but I think that's a little thin <laughs> right. theory that doesn't have much. But what did happen in northern Mexico and Texas, because of the media, because of the Tex-Mex media and the Texas media, people would start finding dead creatures in their back 40 and their, you know, in the barn. Uh, up along the road, and these creatures were four-legged. They would have no hair on them, and they'd have a long, pointed nose. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very easy if you find a dead body to get DNA sampling. So DNA sampling started happening throughout the Southwest, throughout Texas and Oklahoma, and 100% of the time, the DNA would come back um, dog coyote, right. fox. Uh, in other words, a different kind of canid, and 100% of the time, 
it was those kinds of creatures that were being seen. The thing is, they all had mange, and the mange would take the hair off and give them a very uh, mm. unsightly, uh, you know, undog-like look to them. But none of those, and they're, now they're called, it's morphed into chupacabra in uh, Texas, and so you get the reports from Texas media of another chupacabra. Before you knew it, they were being seen in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. There is a Montauk monster in New York was said to be a chupacabra. That actually turned out to be a decomposing raccoon with no hair on its body. There gotcha. was one that was uh, found and photographed from Panama. That turned out to be a sloth with no hair on it. There's a couple of them found off the coast of uh, England. Turned out to be a, a seal with no hair on it. So you have these chupacabra and chupacabras being seen all over the world now. Some of them are nothing more than dead creatures on the road, raccoons, opossums, um, seals, and they have nothing at all to do with the original reports from Puerto Rico. Have, has there ever been ones found that you can't uh, explain as, as raccoons with no hair on them or dogs with no hair on them? Have we actually found any kind of evidence of an actual chupacabra? No, okay. actually no. Everyone that's been found has come back with uh, uh, some kind of DNA that we know about. Gotcha. So, you know, that, that's that's what I like about, about you, Lauren, is that you're a cryptozoologist and you'll you know, you'll accept the actual, uh, you, you'll tell me when you don't know what it is, and you'll tell me when, when you do know what it is. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, this field is, is, is a legitimate field. You know, you're not going to say, there's a chupacabra. You're telling us that sometimes people just have a big imagination with certain things. No, no, I think that there's plenty enough mystery out there without us making up other ones. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, then let's let's go back to where we, where you started uh, when you mentioned that when you were uh, a kid, you really got into the Yeti and and the Sasquatch and the Bigfoot. Um, how how much uh, research have you done into into those uh, fields? Oh, oh, a lot. I've written a couple books on Bigfoot, and I've written a book on Yeti, and uh, you know, certainly interviewed a lot of people, gone on Bigfoot expeditions, talked at Bigfoot conferences. Uh, Bigfoot, of course, is going to always be the most popular part of cryptozoology because human beings love themselves. <laughs> and so the creature that looks the most like them, big and strong, and as a native you know, walker and all of that, they're going to be interested in that. Yetis are a little bit uh, distant you know, in, in Nepal, in the Himalayas, but uh, you know what they say about your first love. So since my first love was was the Yeti. Yeah. I'm always going to be interested in that. But the most questions I get from people coming to the museum or when I go to conferences, it's all about Bigfoot. And Bigfoot is very, very popular nowadays. You get conferences with a thousand people coming to them in Ohio. And who could have ever imagined that 20 years ago? Yeah. Uh, so, and I think there's a, there's a lot of unknown about is there, an, is there a creature out there? Is there... Is there 4,000? Is there 2,000 of them in the Pacific Northwest? I, I really do think that the cultural Bigfoot is the source of a lot of Western, re I mean, uh, Eastern reports, but I think that they're, you know, from Northern California to Southern Alaska with, um, you know, with the, the states in the Pacific Northwest and the provinces in Canada really holding their own with some very, very good historical and recent sightings of Bigfoot and Sasquatch you're going to get uh, a lot of hope that's very high for a discovery there someday. Actually, I think a, a lumber truck's going to hit one, and we'll finally discover it. 
Well, and what do you think those creatures might be? Uh, I've always thought that they're they're more hominid than they are uh, anthropoid. I don't think they're they're definitely some kind of ape, but then I consider humans really an evolved ape too. Mm-hmm, right. But I think that uh, as opposed to Grover Krantz and uh, Dr. Melbourne and all of those folks that really think it's Gigantopithecus, I think Gigantopithecus, we know they were 10 feet tall. And I see Bigfoot, uh, Sasquatch, is much more in the six and a half to seven and a half foot range. And so my favorite fossil candidate for what they might be is Paranthropus, which is a much more human-like creature that always went on two legs, and they were found uh, in Africa, then over into Asia. And I, th- I don't think it's a big leap to see that whenever the Native uh, Canadians and Native Americans came over the Bering Strait, that right along them, following in the woods, uh, besides the moose and, you know, all, mm-hmm. all these other creatures, was a Sasquatch. And that uh, certainly could have been what happened. What is the difference between Big Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and the Yeti? Well, let me tell you. Sasquatch is actually a Canadian name for Bigfoot. And so what you've got going on, then, is... is um, a real confusion because a lot of Canadians understand that they want to be very regional, and yet it's exactly the same thing. The name Sasquatch came into being in 1929 and was really talking about a, a forest giant. In 1958, the word Bigfoot came into being in California and uh, then has really taken over the world. So you have reports all over the world of anything that's hairy, is now called the Bigfoot, which is a real misnomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the creatures in China, for instance, the Yaren is really different. The creatures that are like this in um, in Australia, for instance, the Yowie is different. The Yeti, I think, is a real divergent creature, a real divergent uh, cryptid that is totally, totally different than Bigfoot or Sasquatch. It has a foot that looks like an ape foot, they're seen on going on all fours more often than you hear reports about Bigfoot. So I think, uh, and I really consider the evidence showing that the Yeti is very much uh, more anthropoid, more like the gorilla would be compared to a human. Okay, got it, got it. And of course, obviously, it lives in the snow and in the in the mountains of of like you said, Nepal and those type of places. Yeah, yeah. Well, it lives in the mountain valleys. One of the mistakes that's often made by popular cultural media is that they think the Yeti lives in the mountains, lives in the snow, and they're all white. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the reason that uh, most Americans think that the Yeti, the abominable snowman, is all white because is because of one movie, Rudolph the Red Nose <laughs> I was going to say that. And then, of course, Empire Strikes Back when Luke gets stuck in the cave with the Wampa. That's also kind of a Yeti, too, right? That certainly (laughs) reinforced it, yes. (laughs) But most of them live in very hot, humid, montane, you know, mountain valleys in Nepal and Bhutan and places like that. And actually, the native peoples report them as being um, brown, reddish brown to black. And so there's nothing at all about them that are quite... Mm-hmm. White, right. And you mentioned a couple minutes ago that you think it's it's only a matter of time before a lumberjack or somebody actually captures a, a, a specimen? Well, I, I think that a lumber truck 
might hit one. Oh, gotcha. Um, well, you know, I think that we need physical evidence. I'm an anti-hunting Yeti or cryptids person. I think that was very, uh, that is very much the model from the Victorian era, but you certainly don't need to do that anymore. Live capture would do the trick. You could live capture a Bigfoot, for instance, uh, take photographs of it, take blood samples, DNA samples, keep it contained in a spot, and then release it in a preserve uh, where it wouldn't be hurt or it could find others of its kind. But to actually go out and hunt them, um, we already know that their population must be very low because we don't run into them that much. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it might happen in an accidental sort of way in which, uh, you know, these lumber trucks, certainly up here in Maine, which is a major industry, they go barreling down the roads, these uh, backwoods roads, uh, you know, high, high speed. Right. And I think that up in the Pacific Northwest, it certainly happens there, too, and they might actually hit one. Yeah, well, it's like I think you said, like you said, that it's just a matter of time before we get some sort of actual specimen. Uh, one last question, Lauren. I just wanted to go back to the, to the lake monsters. You mentioned that there was a 1,000 uh, lake monsters that you've found and, and studied and, and, and had reports of. What are, what are the biggest ones with the most evidence, in your opinion? Obviously, Nessie would be one of them. Is there a couple more that stand out? Yeah, well, I've always been a real proponent. If you're an American, if you're a Canadian, you don't need to go all the way over to Loch Ness to study lake monsters. There's plenty of lakes in Quebec. There's certainly plenty of lakes in British Columbia. So starting from the West Coast, all you have to do is really look at uh, Lake Okanagan with Ogopogo, and then you go down into the United States, and Flathead Lake has a lot of lake monster reports from there. You go right across the, the continent, and you uh, have... Old, old reports from the Great Lakes that hmm. need to be investigated a bit more. But Lake Champlain, and Lake Champlain is such a large lake that it reaches into, uh, from New York and Vermont into Quebec, is a lake that has an incredible amount of evidence. And, and really the reports there uh, start in the 18, 1812, 1813, when uh, the, the explorers and the uh, people that were... Mm-hmm settling down, we're chopping the trees down and beginning to settle around that lake. So, you know, for Loch Ness, you had to wait until 1933, whenever the new road was uh, put in and the trees were blasted down, and then they finally could see the lock, or you know, mm-hmm. for the first time in a really good way. So there's those lakes, um, you know, and so you, you have different lakes in uh, Europe, different lakes like the Black Sea has some reports, but uh, then you get into those lakes. Like even in Canada, uh, there's a lake called Lake Utopia, hmm. uh, but it's it's um, right in New Brunswick, and it actually has a connection to the ocean, oh. so you could have uh, sea serpents coming into there. There's reports of them having waves of reports every 30 years, almost as if there's some kind of breeding pattern to them. Hmm. So, uh, are you saying that there's evidence of sea serpents as well? Oh, yeah, there's definitely evidence of sea serpents, and I think we definitely know that sea serpents, you know, some of them were the discovery of the oarfish, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a long thing that uh, probably related to some. Even the giant squid probably was mistaken as a sea serpent at right. some point. But over and above that, you have, uh, there's, for instance, 26 dolphins, beaked whales, that are waiting for classification and 
and uh, scientific papers. So those were uh, unknown cryptids in the ocean that are still waiting to be uh, written up. So I think that within the next 25 years, though, you're going to find some large sea serpent-type animals that are verified, too. When you're saying that there's beach whales, they're actually washed up on the shoreline somewhere, and they have to go and actually make sure that they're whales and not some other type of species? Well, you, you've got uh, beach in part right, but I was saying beaked, B-E-A-K-E-D. Okay. The, the beaked whales do all oh. beach, and that's how they do discover them, because they see them on the horizon, and then later, years later, when they're beaching, and then they're discovered, yes. Wow. Man, so many uh, mind-boggling uh, species and stories that you have, Lauren. Uh, International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Uh, you own it. You created it. The only one like it in the world. Uh, do you work? Do you, are you there every day or, or, or a couple times a week? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I try to make it here. I've you know I had a, uh, some health issues over the winter, but I'm getting better. And I do uh, you know I do turn up at different conferences and and things like that. But I certainly have a, a large volunteer and large staff to take care of it. It's a nonprofit now. It's not owned by me. It's a real, um, a real nonprofit museum that we were trying to share with the public. So great it gets, uh, gets a lot of visitors, and everybody's welcome to come. I'm going to come check it out one day, Lauren. I, I want you to give me a, a, a guided tour. Sure, that'd be great to see you here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lauren. Right. I really appreciate it. Great, great stories. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good, good. See, talk to you soon. All right, bye. So, what kook are we moving tonight? Michael Myers. How's that for another disturbing double shot to wrap up Eek Week on Talk is Jericho. Thanks to the godfather of gore, Tom Savini. Thanks to cryptozoologist Supreme Lauren Coleman. And thank you to Lloyd Kaufman and, of course, my old friend Eli Roth, who told us some amazing stories. Such, such a great guy. I have so much fun with him. Uh, go back and listen to Eli if you have not. He was just on the last episode. So much cool stuff. Uh, thanks to all of them for doing Eek Week. I hope you enjoy it. Halloween, my favorite time of the year. I'm going out this year. Not sure what my costume is going to be yet because I always go pick it up last minute at uh, at Walgreens. Everything's been picked through. There's hardly anything left. Last year, I was Jebediah Townhouse from the regular show. The year before that, I was Ozzy dressed up as a witch. year before that, Sexy Mitt Romney. year before that, Eminem and M. I got a big, giant Eminem costume and put on a, uh, a hip-hop outfit. So I was Eminem and M. Get it? Got it? Good. <laughs> if you want to know more about Lauren Coleman and cryptozoology, check out the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. If you ever get the chance, founded by Lauren Coleman, it's the only one of its kind in the world. It's got so many cryptozoology items and evidence that Lauren has collected dating back to 1960. He referred to some of them in the, in the chat we just had. He's also gathered a bunch of additional items from other cryptozoologist collectors. And if you just want to reach out to Lauren yourself, you can email him if you have any questions, lcoleman at main.rr.com. That's his email on the website, and he wants you to send in your questions, your comments, your theories. Uh, the website is cryptozoologymuseum.com. All right. And, you know, I wouldn't be doing this for you if not for 
All right, so go check that out if you believe. You know I do. And you know I wouldn't be doing this at all if not for you guys downloading two shows every week. And also if not for my Sexy Beast sponsors who help us cover the production costs of doing this twice a week for you. If you want to help support the show, easiest way to do that is to do your online shopping through my Amazon links. Easy to find. Go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page. Then click on Talk is Jericho. You'll see all three of my Amazon links in the UK, the USA, and in Canada. A Every time we do that amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can take care of production costs like trademarking the franken chicken song everyone's gonna try and steal it i gotta put down the cash to make it my own i'm gonna make an animated series that was uh stacy my amazing producer came up with that idea let's do an animated series of the franken chicken any uh up and coming animators or huge hollywood studios you know where to find me There's no extra fees or hidden charges when you go on Amazon. You're getting your shopping done, and you're helping me out in the process. All right. I'm going to tell you who my guest is going to be next week. But first, I'm going to play the scariest song from the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War, based on American Horror Story Coven. And after I play Witchery, I'm going to tell you who my guest is next week. And believe me, you're going to want to hear this because he's one of the most requested guests that I've had since I began this show. First off, crank it up. The scariest tune on Do You Want to Start a War? This is Witchery About Witches. Straight from 
All right, what'd you think about that? If you like it, hit me up on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho at Fozzy Rock. Go to FozzyRock.com for all upcoming shows, ticket information, and VIP packages. Come hang out with me and the band. You will love it. All right. Next week on the show, Dolph Ziggler will be here. That's right. Dolph Ziggler. I got him. Two shows, Wednesday and Friday. We're joined by WWE Dr. Chris Amon. Dolph Ziggler will be here, so don't you dare miss it. Plus, on Wednesday, we'll also have M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold to talk about their new video game, Hail to the King, Death Bat. It's another amazing, fun-filled, star-studded week. Come join us next week. Dolph Ziggler will be here in the meantime. And in between time, that's it. Another edition of Talk is Jericho. We'll see you on Friday. Yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.